All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And here I am ranting on the night of Juneteenth, June 19th, which is definitely going to be an historic Juneteenth. In this country's history, we are definitely uh, at a turning point here. And we are in truly amazing times uh, where we seem to be poised right at the razor's edge with incredible potential for long overdue leaps in social progress in this country or a descent into some kind of an updated American variant of fascism, actual fascism, albeit in an updated American variant. <laughs> and uh, it's certainly a, um, a victory that our wannabe dictator, Donald Trump, in his evident ambition to establish a personal autocracy and a dictatorship in this country, uh, we're at, we seem to be having some kind of restraining effect on him. And clearly, I have no doubt in my mind, very, very evident from all of his actions, that he is trying to foment some big crisis, some big national crisis before the election to, uh, to lubricate his re-election or perhaps even postponing, suspending or canceling the election altogether. And I have no doubt that uh, his initial plan to hold this big campaign rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth intended as an intentional provocation, both the choice of Juneteenth and the choice of Tulsa, which was, of course, the scene in May 1921 of a generalized massacre of the African-American community in that city, the extremely prosperous and successful African-American community known as Black Wall Street back in the day, burnt to the ground and actually bombed from the air by National Guard planes, which had fallen into the hands of some white supremacist militia yahoos who had friends in the Oklahoma National Guard. The victory is that Trump blinked and he was um, forced by... <laughs> <laughs> more rational voices in the administration, it would appear, into uh, putting off the campaign rally for one day. So it's going to take place tomorrow, June 20th, as I'm speaking now on the night of June 19th. And when I talk about rational elements in the administration, I'm thinking primarily, you know, first and foremost, about the military, believe it or not. Because, I mean, obviously, Trump himself doesn't know any history and doesn't have any political sophistication. He has a certain innate psychological genius, I'll grant you, but certainly he doesn't, you know, he didn't know anything about Juneteenth or about the, uh, about the Tulsa massacre of 1921. I think it's people in his administration, really sinister people who are ideologically on board with him in the administration, particularly Stephen Miller comes to mind, who have been um, sort of directing him there. But, um, you know, it's very interesting that both the uh, Defense Secretary Esper and his predecessor, Mattis, and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Miley, have all repudiated Trump's call for the use of military troops to put down the Black Lives Matter uprising. And I'm pretty sure what's going on here is that, uh, you know, this is motivated by fear of mutiny among the ranks and that, you know, grumblings of refusal to obey orders for repression have been percolating up from the grunts up the chain of command to the brass, who sat down and had a little talk with Esper. 
prompting him to make a statement disavowing use of the military for domestic repression. So I think it is concerns such as these which are um, having a, uh, a restraining effect on Trump's evident ambitions to, uh, you know, foment a crisis, which is going to allow him to uh, instate his dictatorship. So when I talk about rational elements in the administration, I'm talking about those who are sufficiently in touch with reality that they feel the pressure from below. Remember the old military maxim, never give an order you're afraid may not be obeyed, because that's when your authority breaks down altogether, and they don't want to see that happen. Still, he only postponed his rally by one day. It's going to be held tomorrow, as I'm speaking now, June 20th. So by the time you're listening to this, it will probably have already transpired. And I am certainly hoping against hope that it all goes down peacefully, despite Trump's provocation. And you probably also the tweet that he issued ahead of the rally, quote, any protesters anarchists, agitators, looters, or lowlifes who are going to Oklahoma, please understand you will not be treated as you have been in New York, Seattle, or Minneapolis. It will be a much different scene, exclamation point, end quote. Yeah, as if the NYPD have been so gentle, actually running cars into protesters. Thanks very much. But clearly, he's, you know, he's looking for trouble. And I'm really hoping against hope that he's not going to get it. Not tomorrow, anyway. So, um, but even if we get over the June 20th hump, you know, there's still a few months to go before the election in November, and he may yet get his crisis. And this is a, um, a very, very critical period which we are about to enter here. And interestingly enough, you know, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which had been absolutely dominating the news and public consciousness has sort of been, you know, um, pushed to second place by the Black Lives Matter uprising and the whole reckoning with racial justice, which has suddenly burst upon us since the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis now nearly a month ago. Man, things are going fast. But the uh, the point I want to make tonight is, uh, you know, that apart from the threat, the very real threat of Trump literally establishing a dictatorship, or at least, you know, fomenting enough of a crisis in an effort to establish a dictatorship that he could plunge the country into civil war. That's a very urgent and pressing threat, without a doubt. And I'm going to have more to say about it. But the other threat of a, uh, you know, post-pandemic return to, quote-unquote, normality persists as well. You know, a new normal in which all human activity is relegated to cyberspace. And the meat world and the street world have been essentially abolished. And that absolutely everything is going to be mediated through digital technology, which of course means total surveillance, total, complete surveillance. And actual new police corps being created, such as is already being done in several countries around the world, including nice liberal democracies like New Zealand, specifically charged with monitoring the social contacts of everybody in the populace in the interest of containing the virus. Now, here in the United States, we've, uh, you know, over the course of this past amazing month, we've gone from uh, a high degree of paranoia about the virus to a um, rather lackadaisical attitude about the whole thing. 
This could be turned around very quickly when the proverbial second wave hits. And the lackadaisical attitude is practically guaranteeing that that is going to happen. So uh, while it's really critical that we um, oppose the imposition of Trump fascism, it's also critical that we maintain our vigilance about the post-pandemic return to normality. And again, what makes that a particularly tricky proposition is that the virus actually is a threat. It is not, as Trump's, you know, radical right followers seem to believe, merely a hoax or a creation of the liberal media or whatever. It really is a threat. So it's that second dystopia, which could actually be instated, you know, even under a liberal democracy, such as New Zealand or, you know, (laughs) the United States under Joe Biden, which is the more insidious threat, not the more pernicious, that would be Trump fascism, but the more insidious. And uh, to explore these twin threats, I'm going to be, uh, once again, uncharacteristically tonight, uh, discussing a couple of works of fiction, once again. And once again, a couple of works of fiction written by dead white guys. Uh, But these are um, extremely politically relevant works of fiction, both works of, uh, you know, future fiction or dystopian fiction, which are uh, eerily prescient, you know, practically prophetic in their um, predictions of the actual world that we're living in nearly a century later for one work and well more than a century later for the other. And uh, the two books I'm going to be discussing are It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, 1935, and The Machine Stops by E.M. Foster, 1909. The first dealing with the, um, or predictive of, the threat of Trump fascism, and the second, astonishingly predictive of, the threat of, you know, a a cybernetic totalitarianism in a post-pandemic normality. Still, the first one first, even though it was written later. So, it can't happen here. Was Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel about what it could look like in the United States if a figure like Hitler or Mussolini came to power. And the uh, the populist demagogue who was elected president is amusingly named Buzz Windrip. And although he was inspired by Huey Long, who was the populist demagogue um, governor of Louisiana in this period early 1930s, um, the parallels to Trump are are absolutely extraordinary, with some of the rhetoric actually matching verbatim, such as the appeal to, quote-unquote, the forgotten men. And although a a Democratic senator from an unnamed Midwestern state, rather than a Republican New York billionaire who has never held office, Windrip shares with Trump an amalgam of populism and racism. And... uh, Remember, this was written back in the 1930s when the, uh, the current party postures were just beginning to take shape and they were still kind of as a holdover from the Civil War and Reconstruction. It was the Democrats who, uh, you know, were the party of the more blatantly racist party, the party of, uh, you know, Southern white racism. And Huey Long was a Democrat. And that didn't really begin to change until, uh, you know, the uh, Democratic Party started to... Uh, tilt more in a left populist direction under, under FDR. And then uh, in 1964, of course, Barry Goldwater launched his so-called Southern strategy to um, basically 
appeal to the Southern white vote on the basis of barely coded racism, unsuccessfully in his case, but then it was um, the same strategy was repeated successfully by Ronald Reagan in 1980. And that marked the real turning point where the party postures, particularly on the question of race, did a complete flip between, um, you know, the Civil War period and the Reagan Revolution. So getting back to the book, getting back to uh, It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis and America Under the Dictatorship of Buzz Windrip. <laughs> a part of Windrip's platform was to instate Jim Crow at the federal level with the best jobs put, a, put aside for white men and blacks, as well as Jews, disenfranchised of the vote. And of course, today we have, you know, so-called voter suppression laws, and Trump has climbed to power by similarly blaming undeserving minorities for the decline of the white middle class. But here's the part that really has me worried at the moment. Windrip's Reichstag fire, so to speak, came on the day of his inauguration. Blacks gathered in Washington to protest. There was violence, possibly staged by provocateurs. And finally, a massacre as troops fired on the demonstrators. This set the stage for Buzz to push through his um, legislative package, establishing a dictatorship immediately upon taking office. Okay, now here, you know, things have, um, the novel deviates from the actual current situation, comfortingly, to a certain degree. <laughs> um, for one, Buzz Windrip got his Reichstag fire on the day of his inauguration, right after he was first elected. Okay, now, you know, here we are, four years into the Trump presidency, and he hasn't really had his Reichstag fire yet. <clears throat> Certainly, democracy, by which I mean the outward forms of bourgeois democracy, is threatened, as never before in the history of the Republic, I would argue. But um, those norms are still in place. It isn't a dictatorship. Now, this is partially due to, uh, you know, Trump's incompetence, and partially due to, uh, you know, those <laughs> democratic traditions in this country being stronger than perhaps I had uh, anticipated when I feared an imminent dictatorship back in 2016, and uh, resistance from the so-called deep state, which basically means elements of the bureaucracy, and particularly the judiciary, who have been providing what resistance they can in the slide toward dictatorship. And again, warnings from the military from the military brass, probably motivated by fear of mutiny within the ranks, that no, they do not have Trump's back. So we haven't had our Reichstag fire yet. There's definitely a sense that we are right on the very edge of it, but it hasn't happened yet, even though we're, you know, four years into Trump's, into Trump's term, first term, and hopefully only term. Another difference is that uh, in the book, Windrip had already built his paramilitary force, his brown shirts, so to speak, before being elected. But rather than being called the brown shirts or the black shirts, like Mussolini's, Hitler's and Mussolini's respective paramilitary forces, they were patriotically named the Minutemen. <laughs> Another, you know, extremely prescient little touch there where he predicts that, you know, the, um, ironically, the, the fascist militia is going to be, uh, you know, dressed up in, um, in the guise of, uh, you know, American patriotism and all that jazz. And, you know, you've got these, um, these right-wing militia types, which are really coming to the fore now, okay? Now, back in uh, 2016, not so much, but they're really coming to the fore now. And particularly, uh, you know, Trump's exploitation of um, 
white middle class and right wing discontent with the COVID-19 lockdown measures, I think, was a real turning point where there really is starting to be, uh, you know, a, a kind of like an armed militia movement, which is congealing now, loyal to Trump, if not yet under any effective means of command, but loyal to Trump. And it was, in the book, it was this force, the, uh, the Minutemen, who actually carried out the Inauguration Day massacre. And we've already seen, you know, these right-wing militia types attacking protesters over the, uh, the course of all of the, uh, the demonstrations we've seen coast-to-coast over the past several weeks. There was a really frightening case just a couple of days ago in Albuquerque, where some protesters were attempting to uh, take down a statue of the Conquistador of New Mexico, Oñate, and they were fired upon by a gunman, apparently, it's a little bit murky, but apparently by a gunman associated with um, some outfit calling it the New Mexico Civil Guard. Completely irregular force, not answerable to anybody, acting under the color of law. And similarly, my, uh, my friends and contacts in Minneapolis have been telling me that a lot of the, uh, the violence and the arson in the black communities in that city has actually been the work of these white right-wing militia types, not by local residents, but an actual provocation. These white nationalist militias coming into black neighborhoods to try to, you know, make trouble. So I really hope, once again, that by the time you're hearing this podcast, June 20th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, will have passed peacefully. But there will still be plenty of opportunities for the emergence of a, you know, Trumpian fascist paramilitary movement and pulling off a Reichstag fire between now and November. Okay, but now let's move on to the other dystopia which we are facing, that if we are lucky enough to make it to November without being plunged into total disaster in this country, and knock on wood, we actually get a President Joseph Biden, (laughs) which would merely be depressing and not terrifying. (laughs) Take what you can get. This is the other dystopia that we're going to be looking at, which in itself is, you know, kind of another face of fascism. Now, it's not fascism on, you know, or on or close to the model of, you know, classical 1930s, 1940s fascism, Hitler and Mussolini and all that. It isn't motivated by, you know, an ultra-right, deeply reactionary, ugly nationalist ideology. It's motivated by concern with public health and security. But the mechanisms of social control which could be put in place under this model, while less brutal, could be more totalizing. And by virtue of being more insidious, could actually in some ways hold an even greater long-term threat to human freedom. And here's where I'm going to turn to the other book, which I'm going to be discussing, which is, um, it's actually a novella. It's kind of somewhere in between a short story and a novel. The Machine Stops by E.M. Foster. And the really amazing thing here is that... um, It's the book which was written earlier, way back in 1909, which is predicting the second dystopia, which is the more futuristic, if you will, and high-tech dystopia. And the really amazing thing about this book is that way back in 1909, more than a century ago, E.M. Foster predicted the internet and social distancing and distance learning and the eclipse of the meat world. And in The Machine Stops, which takes place, you know, in, in the many, many generations in the future, 
there's been some kind of unnamed disaster, which has forced the human race indoors. And everybody lives in, uh, actually below ground, in isolated cells, which they never leave, or very, very, very rarely leave. And society is governed by the machine, with a capital M, which is this vast network which connects all of these individual isolated cells that people live in all over the world, and they can communicate to each other through the machine. So they never ever actually have to see each other or have any physical contact with each other. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? And basically, to, uh, to go over the, uh, the plot, it concerns uh, a mother and son who live on opposite ends of the world, but communicate to each other through the machine, particularly through a, um, a little handheld device by which they can uh, make out each other's faces and talk to each other, <laughs> which is called a plate rather than a phone. But, I mean, it's basically, it's a smartphone. It's never made exactly clear, since people have no physical contact with each other, how they reproduce. <laughs> a rather critical point, which was rather fudged. One day, the son, by the name of Kuno, contacts his mother, Vashti, through the, uh, the plate, through the smartphone, to express that he's going through some kind of um, crisis of discontent and urges her to actually um, come visit him something which is very rarely done, even though, you know, they have air travel, but they hardly ever use it. So they can actually talk to each other in the same room. And she's initially very resistant, because this is such an unorthodox thing to do. But finally, he prevails upon her. And when they meet, he uh, confesses to her that um, he actually wants to leave the, uh, you know, underground artificial reality controlled by the machine and visit the surface of the earth, which nobody ever does, and is considered completely taboo. But he has a premonition that the machine is beginning to malfunction and is going to collapse. And at the end of the book, that's what happens. The, 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 he actually does. He makes his little journey up into the uh, surface world, and he finds that there are still some pockets of human beings living on the surface of the earth. And then he uh, returns to the world mediated by the machine, and uh, the machine stops. And because everybody is dependent on the machine for all of their needs, basically society collapses and everybody dies. <laughs> because they were so completely dependent on their technology for everything, for delivering you know, food and water and communication and all their basic needs, that um, when the machine stops, their whole society collapses and it's mass death and destruction. And... Uh, the one note of hope at the end is that the son, Kuno, has actually become aware that there are still pockets of human beings living on the surface of the earth who maybe can actually, you know, survive and start over. I'm going to read a few passages here. When Kuno expresses to Vashti his um, sense of alienation from the machine, he says, quote, We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space, and of the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills, and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lines. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries, and if it could work without us, it would let us die. 
And, you know, I mean, clearly we can see this happening already. The human race is becoming redundant. In all of my endless nightmarish battles with the various bureaucracies which have colonized our lives over the past weeks, Verizon, my credit card company, my web hosting company, etc., etc., it's becoming harder than ever to actually reach a human being on the phone to explain my problem because you always get some recording telling you that, um, you know, they've got limited staff working because of COVID-19. And instead of having to wait, you know, listening to Muzak on the telephone and, and pressing, pressing the keys on your phone with a choice menu for, um, you know, 20 minutes, now it's more like 40 minutes or even longer. And I was reminded of this in another passage from the book where um, Vashti is starting to panic because the, uh, the machine is not working quite correctly. And, you know, her ability to, um, to communicate and to have all of her, her needs taken care of, you know, music and hot water and et cetera, is no longer reliable. She tries to um, complain to the Committee of the Mending Apparatus, <laughs> which is the bureaucracy which handles complaints from the, uh, the wards of the machine. They replied, as before, that the defect would be set right shortly. Shortly? At once! She retorted, why should I be worried by imperfect music? Things are always put right at once. If you do not mend it at once, I shall complain to the Central Committee. No personal complaints are received by the Central Committee, the Committee of the Mending Apparatus replied. Through whom am I to make my complaint then? Through us. I complain then. Your complaint shall be forwarded in its turn. Have others complained? This question was unmechanical, and the Committee of the Mending Apparatus refused to answer it. I mean, this is a perfect mirror of everything that I've gone through in the past weeks with, uh, with Verizon and my credit card company. Here's a description of her cell and the daily cycle by which she lived. Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere. Buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There, were hot, there was the hot bath button by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm, deodorized liquid. There was the cloth bath button. There was the button that produced literature. There were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. She made the room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She ate and exchanged ideas with her friends and listened to music, and attended lectures, of course, without ever actually leaving her room. She made the room dark and slept. Above her, beneath her, and all around her, the machine hummed eternally. She did not notice the noise, for she had been born with it in her ears. In another one of her exchanges with her son Kuno, he says, "'You talk as if a god had made the machine.' I believe that you pray to it when you are unhappy. Men made it. Do not forget that. Great men, but men. The machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, that is, smartphone, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. So the plate is actually the, uh, the visual device, and then the phone is how they hear each other's voices, whereas for us, it's the same device, but same thing. That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. She fancied that he looked sad. 
she could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people, an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom, declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit. Something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. And man, this is the dystopia we're headed right into. You know, students are never going to actually sit in classrooms again. They're never actually going to be on campuses again. Political meetings, lectures, cultural events, musical performances, it's all going to be done remotely. And it's going to be good enough. And people are going to forget in another generation what the real world was actually like. Kuno continues, Mother, you must come, if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling herself, but no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No life remains on it, and you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. Is this all starting to sound familiar? Remember, this was written way back in 1909. Amazing. And finally, uh, Kuno talks Vashti into it, and she actually um, does fly across the world to visit him. The locations are never made entirely clear. But when she's leaving her cell and she's going up in the elevator to the, the airport, or the vomitory, as they call it in the book, <laughs> um, one other passenger was in the lift, the first fellow creature she had seen face-to-face for months. Few traveled these days, for thanks to the advance of science, the Earth was exactly alike all over. Rapid intercourse, from which the previous civilization had hoped so much, had ended by defeating itself. What was the good of going to Pekin when it was just like Shrewsbury? Why return to Shrewsbury when it would all be like Pekin? Men seldom moved their bodies. The airship was a relic from the former age. It was kept up because it was easier to keep it up than to stop it or diminish it. But it now far exceeded the wants of the population. And when she's on the airship going to visit Kuno, one minor little point I'll end on is that a, uh, one of their fellow passengers slips and falls, and she instinctively tries to help him up. How dare you! exclaimed the passenger. You forget yourself! Vashti was confused and apologized for not having let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete owing to the machine. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. 1909, E.M. Foster predicted exactly the world that we are going into. And, you know, the really scary thing is that uh, of these two faces of fascism, as it were, you know, real old-school, racist, hateful Trump fascism animated by white nationalism, and more or less on the model of, you know, classical fascism, such as it existed between 1922 and 1945, you know, this is the positive alternative to that. What Ian Foster is describing here, this is the positive alternative to Trump fascism. You know, this is kind of like, you know, so-called friendly fascism, as it has been called, which is, you know, completely consistent in its inception with liberal democracy, even though it will ultimately make 
liberal democracy completely pro forma and ultimately completely obsolete. So again, it may be the more innocent of these two faces of fascism, but it's also the more insidious. But the the real point that I have to make here, okay, is that um, these two faces of fascism, these two, and again, I'm using the term fascism a little bit loosely for the second one, for the E.M. Foster model, for the post-pandemic modernity model. It's more, it's, you know, what's been called friendly fascism, which you could argue is an oxymoron, that, you know, fascism inherently by its nature is unfriendly, okay? But uh, acknowledging that I'm using the word somewhat imprecisely, these two, these two dystopias, these two forms of um, totalitarian social control, if you will, they're not mutually exclusive. And, you know, Trump thus far has been playing to the backlash against social isolation. And he's been downplaying the threat of the virus and building his base that way. But that could change in a minute. And if his plans to foment a national crisis before the election fail, as I certainly hope they do, he could exploit the virus as the national crisis and use the pandemic as his pretext for imposing a dictatorship and perhaps postponing suspending or canceling the election. And um, I'll also point out that there is uh, one society on Earth which represents a perfect amalgam of these two dystopias, where all of uh, you know, the, the, the most sophisticated high-tech systems of surveillance and social control and monitoring and tracking of the populace in the guise of um, you know, security and containing the virus are being instated by an ugly ultra-nationalist regime, which is actually establishing concentration camps for ethnic minorities. And I'm talking, of course, about the ironically named People's Republic of China, the perfect amalgam of the two dystopias that I'm talking about, the insidious high-tech systems of control and surveillance in the service of an ugly ultra-nationalist revanchist regime. And Trump could similarly amalgamate these two dystopias. And, you know, for the moment, he is, uh, you know, among those strong men on the planet, also including Bolsonaro in Brazil and Lukashenko in Belarus, who have been, you know, downplaying the virus and dismissing it. But he could flip in a minute and follow in the model of um, Duterte of the Philippines or Orban of Hungary of exploiting the virus to seize draconian powers. So uh, we're in a hell of a pickle right now, folks. (laughs) We really are. And again, it's, you know, it's the proverbial best of times, worst of times, because I am extremely inspired by the national uprising, which is going on in this country. And I've been, you know, out with the protesters in the streets of New York just about every day since the uprising began in the immediate aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. And you can see my uh, photojournalism from the uh, the protests here in New York at um, The Village Sun, thevillagesun.com. And as always, you can see my uh, journalism and bloggery about everything that I've been talking about on my website, countervortex.org. But uh, we're at a moment in American history here where, again, there's the potential both for social advances that I never thought I would live to see. And, you know, these, these radical, actually anarchist ideas, like abolishing the police, are entering mainstream discourse. And as with the gains of, uh, you know, anarchist and radical left forces in Italy in the early 1920s, there is the potential 
for a fascist backlash, or at least a fascistic backlash. And even if we manage to dodge that bullet, we're still going to have to somehow grapple with the challenge of keeping alive some kind of a human future in the high-tech dystopia of a post-pandemic normality. Very interesting, very challenging times we're living in all of a sudden. Be in touch. Let me know what you think about all this. Again, you can uh, check out my uh, spewings and rantings about all this that I've been discussing on my website, countervortex.org. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.